Good morning. As already has been mentioned, and I think we all know at this point, Brother Randy is not going to be with us this week. Um, he is holding a gospel meeting down at the Center Grove Congregation, and I will just throw in an extra plug. That's not very far down the road. I mean, it's not like we're having to drive to, to White County or somewhere like that again. It's just a couple miles down the road. If everybody has a chance, at some point, one night this week, let's go listen to Brother Randy speak at the Center Grove Congregation. I know it'll be a great encouragement to him. It'll probably... It, it will help him and, and let him know that we're there to support him and that we stand behind him and what he's doing. One and done. What does it mean to be one and done? Now, there's been a lot of people throughout history that have been known and have been defined by that phrase, one and done. Basically, what it does is it denotes an individual that has had one claim to fame in their life. They've had one thing that they're known for but then you never really hear much else about them. In the music industry, we tend to, to call these, these artists, these groups, as one-hit wonders. They have one song that they're known for, and we can't really think of anything else they've ever sung. In the software industry, you may have one company that they've had one software release that's just been phenomenal, but they never really do anything else. You have athletes that they're known for one game they did so well in, or one season they didn't grade in, but then you can never really think of anything else they ever did. Basically what it is, it's somebody who has had great success at one point in their life, but they've never again been able to achieve that same level of, of success. They're known as being one and done. Why does that happen? Why does that happen to people? Are they trying to achieve that same level of success again and they just don't have it in them? That they try, they keep working, they keep working, they just can't do it. Or maybe they got to the point that says, look, I've done the best I can do. I'm going out while I'm on top. I'm not even going to try anymore. Maybe they, they reach that pinnacle of success and they just they quit trying. Or is it because they let life or other things around them slowly start getting in the way? Maybe their family started pulling them away from what they were doing and they just didn't have the time for it anymore. That way, or for that reason, we never really hear about them again. Keep that in the back of your mind for a minute. We're going to come back to that some more, but let's change directions for a second. Let's say I'm, I'm a young person. I'm interested in the Bible. I'm interested in the church, but I've, I've never given my life over to Christ yet. I now decide that I want to take that step. I want to become a Christian. I get baptized and come in contact with that saving blood of Jesus. I'm fired up about my Christianity. I surround myself around people that are helping me. I, I get closer to my church family. I'm making new friends. Everything I'm doing is geared toward following Christ. I'm praying every day. I'm reading my Bible every day. Everything I can do is now gone in a new direction, and I'm following God exactly like he wants me to. Then slowly life starts to get in the way. I find it harder and harder to make time to do things with the congregation that I worship with, to do things for the Lord's church. My prayer life slowly starts to, to kind of fade into the background a little bit. I don't have as much time to read my Bible as I wanted to. Maybe I have family responsibilities and stuff that have started pulling me in a different direction. Church and my Christianity starts to fall farther and further down my priority list. And so there comes a point to where I, I just don't have time for it anymore. I really would like to have more time that I could dedicate with church. I really would like to have more time that I could do this or that. But church just it's not, it's not making my priority list anymore. What happened? 
Was I just not good enough at being a Christian? Was I destined to always fail at my Christianity? Maybe I was in the wrong place at the wrong time. Maybe, yeah, at some point in my life I would do good as a Christian, but it, it just wasn't my time yet. It, it just I wasn't ready yet, and I thought I was. Or maybe I let life start slipping in. Maybe I let things start getting in between me and Christ, in between me and my work for the church, to where slowly church just wasn't that important anymore. What was it that really happened? We talked about these individuals that they're termed as one and done in their life. In, in some secular activity that they're, they're known for. What about us in our Christian lives? What's going to keep me from being a one-and-done Christian? That I've become baptized. I, I have this, this achievement that I can pin on my board somewhere that says, I've been baptized, I've been a Christian. Is everything downhill from there on in my Christianity? Am I a one-and-done Christian? Turn with me to Matthew chapter 28. This is the passage that Brother Lester read for us just a second ago. Matthew chapter 28. Let's start reading in verse 18. It says, And Jesus came and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. And, lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Amen. It says they're to go forth and make disciples in all nations. So what we need to ask ourselves this morning, there's three things I want us to look at is, first, what, what's it mean to be a disciple? What is a disciple? And then what is that cost of discipleship? Everything in this life has a cost tied to it. What is the cost of being a disciple of Jesus Christ? And then how do I keep myself motivated? How do I keep myself going to where I don't start just kind of start fizzling out, that I can keep my Christian life where it needs to be? So we look at first, what is a disciple? The scriptures very plainly lay out for us what a disciple is. Turn with me to Luke chapter 14. I want everybody to go ahead and turn here. We're going to spend a little bit of time this morning in this passage. And if you have a little marker in your Bible, go ahead and mark this page as well because we'll go to some other passages, but we'll come back to this. Luke chapter 14 Let's start reading in verse 25. Remember, we're wanting to look at what is a disciple. It says, Now great multitudes went with him, and he turned and said to them, so this is Jesus speaking, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, and his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. Whoa. Think about that for a minute. You have to hate your father and mother, wife and children, and even yourself in order to be a disciple. People in the world look at a passage like that and say, you guys are crazy. You're telling me I have to loathe my parents? I have to despise my wife and children in order to be a follower of Christ? Is that what Jesus is saying right here? When he says you have to hate father and mother, wife and children, and even yourself? You know, the scriptures tell us that we're to honor our father and mother. And so if that's what this passage means, we have now have a contradiction in the Bible. Christ also tells husbands, you're to love your wife just as Christ also loved the church. So if it says that I'm to despise my wife and my children, we now have a contradiction in the Bible. So what is Jesus really saying here that in order to be a disciple of his, you have to hate father and mother, hate your wife and children, and even hate yourself? 
What Jesus is using here is what's known as a form of sharp contrast. What he's saying is, your love for me, your love for Christ should be so strong, so far beyond any other love that you have for anyone or anything else on this planet, that in comparison it, it appears as hatred. That your love for Christ should far outdo any other love that you have. Another way that he could have said this is if you want to be my disciple, you have to love me more than anyone or anything else. That means more than your possessions, more than hobbies you may have, more than your friends that you may have, more than your job, more than your family, more than yourself. Your love for Christ has to be number one at the top in order to be his disciple. So some of you may think right now, so Jonathan, you've only been married for seven years. I don't know about you, but I remember the vows I said on my wedding day. My spouse is number one in my life. My wife, my husband, they're the number one love I have. I will say right now, that's very noble. But you have the wrong number one priority in your life. Christ is to be the number one love that you have in your life. And it tells us that right here in Luke chapter 14. That in comparison, everything else is to be as if it was hatred. You may step back and say, hey, Jonathan, you're, you're digging yourself a hole even deeper. You have three kids. My children are the center of my life. Shouldn't I be loving my children more than anything else that I'm around? I'll say right now, if you want to ruin your children faster than anything else, make them the center of your life. What we should be teaching our children is Christ is to be the center of their life. What better way to teach a child that than to show them that by example? We make Christ the center of our lives. Our children then will mimic that, make Christ the center of, our, of their lives. Do not ruin your children by making them the center of your lives. Yes, you should love them, but your love for Christ should be even stronger. Let's keep reading. Luke chapter 14. Jump on down to verse 27. It says, And whoever does not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. So what does it mean to bear our cross and come after Christ? I know we've all heard that before. This is where I want you to mark, mark this page. We're going to come back to this. Turn with me over to Matthew chapter 16. Matthew chapter 16, let's begin reading in verse 24. It says, Then Jesus said to his disciples, If anyone desires to come after me, let him to deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it, for what profit is it to a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? Taking up our cross and following Jesus. If we're not willing to do that, we're not worthy of being his disciple. You know, a lot of people throughout the world today, when they say they have this, this load that they're bearing, they're carrying their cross, a lot of times they may be referring to some kind of physical illness or infirmity that they have. You know, I'm dealing with this illness, this sickness. That's my load I'm carrying. That's my cross I'm, I'm bearing for Christ. Or maybe I have this strained relationship with a family member in my life, and I'm working hard. I'm trying my best to keep that relationship together. Or I have this job that I just I can't stand. I'm constantly going to work every day at this job that's just making me miserable, but I know I'm providing for my family. Therefore, I'm bearing my cross. I'm carrying that load just as Christ told me to do. Is that what Jesus meant when he said, we're to carry that cross, we're to bear that cross and follow him? I'll say right now, I don't believe that's what Jesus meant. 
You know, today, when we think of the cross, at least in my mind, it's the way it's always been, and it's the way the world has kind of made this. When we think of the cross, the picture we tend to get in our heads sometimes is this perfect, symmetrical shape of a cross that almost has like this glow around it, that it's come to represent forgiveness. It's come to represent God's grace. 2,000 years ago, what did they see the cross as? I will say when Jesus spoke these words that we just read, he hadn't been crucified yet. Most people at that point had no idea what was coming. At least they, he tried to tell them they didn't understand that he was getting ready to be crucified. So when he said, you pick up your cross and follow me, what kind of picture do you think went in their mind? Was it this glowing relic or emblem? Or I would say when they heard the cross, the one thing they probably thought of was a horrible, torturous death. That's what went through their mind 2,000 years ago. And so when Christ is saying here, you're to pick up your cross and follow me, I believe what he's saying is we have to be willing to do whatever is necessary in our life to follow him, even if that means to, that we pick up a cross, we walk beside him down that road to our own crucifixion, that we be willing to die for him. Now, today, do we have to physically die in order to be a disciple of his? No. But the Bible teaches us in many places that we are to die to ourselves. When we're baptized, we rise this new creature, this new creation, that we're constantly to be living our life as a living sacrifice to him. Then when he says we pick up that cross and follow him, we do whatever is necessary to make sure that we stay following the commands that he lays out for us. That's the way that we're worthy at that point to be a disciple of his. Turn back over to Luke chapter 14. Luke chapter 14, let's start reading again in verse 28. It says, For which of you, intending to build a tower, does not sit down first and count the cost, whether he has enough to finish it? Lest, after he has laid the foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, going to make war against another king, does not sit down first and consider whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? Or else, while the other is still a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks conditions of peace. So in the context here, it, it's telling you people who do great things, they sit down and they weigh out the cost before they do it to make sure they don't get in over their head. Well, right before this, he's talking about being a disciple. So what, what Christ is getting at here is we have to understand what the cost of this discipleship really is. So we now ask the question, what is that cost? Read verse 33 with me. It says, so likewise, whoever of you does not forsake all that he has cannot be my disciple. If we're not willing to forsake everything we have in our life for Christ, we cannot be his disciple. When the world hears this, the first thing that most people think of is physical possessions. The physical possessions I have in my life after forsake them. So are you telling me I have to give away everything that I have and become a poor person in today's standards in order to be a disciple of Christ? That's not what he's saying. Possessions, maybe, yeah, maybe they are getting in my way. But you can have a lot of possessions and still be a, a, a true Christian, a true disciple, a true follower of Jesus Christ. I want us to look a little bit deeper. I believe what Jesus is telling us right here is not just physical possessions, but anything that gets in the way, that stands between me and Christ. If I'm not willing to forsake that, then I'm not worthy to be his disciple. What about a hobby I may have? 
All of us like to do things. We all have hobbies. What if I have a hobby in my life that it takes so much of my time, it takes so much of my money, that I now no longer have the time or, or the funds to help the church? Like I said earlier, the church starts falling further down my priority list. What if it's a hobby that I'm involved in that's making me get to that point? What if it's sports? I grew up playing sports. I've played sports my entire life. What if a sport that I'm involved in, maybe as an athlete or maybe as a fan, is becoming so involved in my life that I now no longer have the time that is needed to devote to Jesus? Maybe it's I'm going to ball games, it's practices, I'm going to attend a sporting event one day and I just don't have time to go to church today. I've got a football game I've got to go watch. What if it's my job? What if the job that I have has put me into an environment around people that are so unchristian? I mean, Glenn talked about this morning in the adult class that, that he was blessed to have a job where he's not worried about having to be around the gossip and trying to stay away from it. And that's a wonderful thing. But what if I put myself into a job now that it's affecting me as a Christian, that I'm hearing this trash, this vulgarity talked around me all day long, and I'm having a hard time keeping my mind and my thoughts where they need to be? Is that getting between me and Christ? You know, and, and it may not be a physical activity that's getting between me and Christ. I want us to look at, for just a few minutes, at three things that I think, from a content standpoint, is beginning to desensitize us as Christians in this world. And when I say content, what I'm, what I'm referring to is the environment that I place myself in, the things that I'm allowing myself to see, to hear, that, that I'm beginning to think about because of what I'm around. I want us to look at three of these things. And I will say for a disclosure standpoint, a lot of the material that I'm getting ready to share, I got from a book called Game Plan by a man named Joe Wells. Highly, highly recommend everybody read this book. It's probably one of the best books I've ever read. Really opens your eyes to a lot of things that go on in this world today. Game Plan by Joe Wells. So the first thing from a content standpoint that I want us to think about, do we really pay attention to what comes across our televisions today? Are we really paying attention to what's being pumped into our house by those nice little black coax cables we have ran through our walls? What's coming across our TV screens? You know, a lot of people may think, but we, we have government agencies that are helping watch out for this. We have the Federal Communication Commission, the FCC. They don't allow networks and companies to broadcast things in our house that are just filthy and vulgar. They're, they're filtering a lot of that stuff out for us. So we should be fine, right? July 2010, this was just a few years ago, the U.S. Second Circuit Court of Appeals, they handed down a ruling in a case that was the Fox television stations versus the FCC. It was more than just Fox. It was several of the, the TV stations together. Their name was just listed on, on the lawsuit. Basically what happened, you had Fox and all these other networks, they got together and they want to say, hey, we don't want the FCC being able to tell us what we can and can't show on our TV stations. On our TV shows that we're trying to broadcast and share with the world, we don't want the government coming in and fining us and giving us some kind of a monetary penalty because of what we're doing. In 2010, this, this Court of Appeals handed down a ruling that said the FCC does not have the right to enforce or to attempt to enforce these fines against these networks. Now, it wasn't all-encompassing. They can't do any, but it struck down a majority of them. What does that mean to us today? 
What does that really mean, that court ruling? Since that ruling, again, this happened in July 2010, if we look at some statistics from 2005 to 2010, on all networks, the amount of profanity on television has gone up 69.3% from 2005 to 2010. Vulgarity, profanity that's coming into our houses that we're allowing in on our TVs has gone up almost 70% in five years. The greatest increase of this profanity that we're seeing on TV happened during what's known as family hour. That's from 8 o'clock to 9 o'clock. The time that families typically sit down together and they may watch a sitcom, they may watch something together on TV, that saw the biggest increase in vulgarity. On all networks, the use of anatomical or sexual references on TV went up 137% in those same five years. More than doubled. The biggest increase in that, again, came during family hour, went up almost 270%. So I ask the question, are we really paying attention to what's on our TVs today? The content that we're allowing ourselves to be exposed to that may possibly be desensitizing us to what Christ really wants us to do. Now, am I saying we have to go home today or tomorrow whenever, cut our cable off? No, I'm not saying that. But what I'm saying is, is we have to be aware. We have to pay attention to what we're being exposed to, what our family is being exposed to. The second form of content that we, we have in our life that maybe we just kind of let go in literally one ear and out the other, music. What are the lyrics and music saying today? I mean, we all listen to the radio driving down the road, and almost every single phone today, people have music on it. They have their headphones, their earbuds plugged into it, listening to music while they're doing whatever they're doing during the day. Lyrics in music today have become increasingly violent, increasingly sexually charged, loaded with profanity and references to drug and alcohol use. You may be thinking, Jonathan, we live down here in the South. We don't listen to rap and all that stuff down here. We're listening to country music. Have we listened to country music today? We listened to country music 30 years ago. It was all the same stuff. And again, I'm not saying we have to go start turning our radios off while we're driving down the road today. But are we paying attention to what the words of these songs are really saying? You know, I, I'd actually thought about printing off the lyrics to one of the number one songs in the Billboard charts today. So this isn't a song that's just being dug out of a hole somewhere that nobody's heard. Number one on the charts today. I actually didn't print it off and bring it in because I decided I would be too ashamed to stand here in front of you and read to you the lyrics of this song. It's horrible. But so many of us today say that, well, I'm, I'm not even paying attention to it. I like the beat. I li I, it makes me feel good. I'm not paying attention to the words. Are we? Or is it subconsciously doing something to our minds, making us think things that we shouldn't be thinking? Is it affecting our influence as a Christian because people know we listen to this stuff? The third thing I want us to look at, and I, th I really think this one has the biggest impact and probably will have the biggest impact on us probably the rest of our lives, the Internet. The Internet is probably one of the greatest tools that has ever been invented in terms of being able to share knowledge with each other. And I, I don't know if the Internet will ever go away. I'm not sure the world could survive without it today. We've become so entwined within it. I mean, we're basically connected to everybody throughout the world 24-7 today. We could hear of a car crash that happens over in India. We find out about it within minutes here in the United States. 
That's just amazing. There's so much knowledge that we can get from the internet. We can basically have anything and everything we want at the click of a button, literally at the click of your mouse. I mean, who actually carries maps and atlases in their cars today? I remember as a kid, I knew exactly where to find every atlas in a car. It's stuck up underneath somebody's seat. It's in the glove box. We can always find a map. Everybody has a GPS on their phones today. You don't get lost anymore. You have this nice little soothing voice that if you take a wrong turn is going to tell you to turn around and go back another direction. The Internet is a great thing, but the amount of filth, the amount of trash that is on the Internet is just mind-boggling. I want to share with you a few things, some of the dangers the Internet has provided to us today. You know, studies showed that the average teenager spends an hour and 29 minutes a day on the Internet. It's about an hour and a half a day. Not necessarily anything wrong with that. And a lot of you may say, hey, my kids are not at home for an hour and a half sitting on the computer. Phones have Internet today. It could be on their phone, and most of that time may be spent on social networking sites, sites such as Facebook, such as Twitter, such as Instagram, where they're sharing information with their peers. Not necessarily anything wrong with that, but listen to some of these statistics. In 2010, if you went to the site called YouTube, and if you're not familiar, YouTube is just a website to where people can share videos with each other. Maybe it's a home movie or something that you recorded at a sporting event. And you can share, and other people around the world can watch these videos and leave comments underneath the video about what they thought about it. But if you went and looked up the top 10 videos on YouTube from the year 2010, and I'm not talking videos, and eh, a couple hundred thousand people saw it. The number one video, four, it was viewed 406 million times. There's probably not too many people in this country that didn't see the video. But if you go and look up the top 10 videos for YouTube in 2010, six out of 10 of those videos, they, in, they included immodest dressed, profanity, provocative moments, violence, drug use. 60% of the top 10 videos from that year just trash in it. And like I said, viewers can then turn around and post comments underneath these videos. You go look at some of the comments that are left on some of these videos. Even down to stuff that's intended for just our kids to be watching. Stuff that you even look at, at Disney videos and stuff. Stuff that's geared towards little kids. Nearly three-fourths of these comments that are under these videos contain profanity. So I now ask the question again, what are we allowing ourselves to be exposed to in our life in this content? There's one more statistic I want to share with you about the Internet. And, and to me, this just this blew my mind. And it should really affect every one of us if we really think about this. According to a web-based group known as Family Safe Media, the average age that someone is exposed to pornography on the Internet for the very first time 11 years old. The average age someone sees pornography on the internet for the first time is 11 years old. 90% of the youth between the ages of 8 and 16 say they have seen pornography on the internet. 90% of them. And so again, we ask ourselves, what are, what are we paying attention to in our homes? Now, I'm not saying we have to go home today and cut our Internet off. But what I'm saying is we have to pay attention to this. We have to be monitoring what our family is doing out there on the Internet, what we're seeing on TV, what, our he what we're hearing coming across our radios. Yeah. We may think that it's not affecting us, but it is. 
It is simply desensitizing Christians from the sins that go on in this world. And do we even pay attention to them anymore? Here's the point. We as Christians just can't sit back in this world anymore and ignore what's going on around us. This world is not an easy place for us to live in anymore. Yes, we have freedoms in this country. The United States government has allowed us to be able to come and worship in places like this, and we don't feel like that we're going to be harassed for that, arrested for any reason, or persecuted for it. But the devil works in so many more ways. And again, Glenn kind of referenced this, referred to it this morning. I read something somewhere. The devil, he doesn't come dressed in a red cape, carrying a pitchfork with a tail and little horns. The devil comes disguised as everything we've ever wanted. Every desire we've ever had, that's where the devil's at. He's finding ways into our homes today. Are we allowing these things to get between us and Christ? Turn with me over to Matthew chapter 15. Matthew chapter 15, begin reading in verse 17. It says, Do you not yet understand that whatever enters the mouth goes into the stomach and is eliminated? But those things which proceed out of the mouth come from the heart, and they defile a man. For out of the heart proceed evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witnesses, and blasphemies. It's not necessarily, and it doesn't have to be, it could be, but it's not necessarily physical things and activities in our life that may be beginning may be getting between us and Christ. When Christ told us that we're for, to forsake all that we have, we're to eliminate those things that get in our way in our Christian life. It may be the content we're exposed to in our life, things that we're allowing into our heart. The book of Matthew here tells us it's from our heart where comes these awful sins. Are we protecting our heart? So the cost of discipleship we've looked at, and, and we've all heard this, we're to be people that are separate and apart from this world. Somebody should be able to look at our life and know that we are a Christian. We are not just blending in to everybody else in the world. Does that mean we're going to have to remove certain things from our life, certain things that we're involved in that the rest of the world loves? Maybe it's something that we might enjoy doing. But do we need to eliminate those things in order that our Christian life will be what it needs to be? We've got to put ourselves in the correct situations in our lives, surround ourselves with the appropriate content. We don't allow ourselves to get put to where the world is going to have a massive influence on us. I mean, it's the simplest way to put it. Whatever it is that we're finding between us and Christ, we have to be willing to take the steps necessary to remove those things, as Christ said, or we're not worthy of being his disciple. We've got to be able to take up that cross daily and follow him. We have to do what is necessary to make sure we're obeying his commands. So now we ask the third question I, I said we're going to get to is, how do we stay motivated? What is it I can, stay, I can do in my life to keep me on that track that I don't now become this one-and-done Christian? You know, there's a lot of sermons that we can point to that, that talk about prayer, that talk about daily Bible reading. So I'm not going to get into a lot of that here this morning, but I will say if those are not where they need to be, our prayer life, our Bible reading, if those are not where they should be, that's the foundation of everything else. We have to get those right in our life first. But a couple other things I want us to highlight. First, the scriptures point out to us several individuals in the Bible who it calls disciples. Acts chapter 9, verse 10, it talks about a man named Ananias, and it calls him a disciple. 
Later on in verse 36 of Acts chapter 9, it talks about a lady by the name of Tabitha, or we better know her as Dorcas. It calls her a disciple. We need to find these individuals in the scriptures that are termed disciples. We need to imitate what we know about their lives, try to make our lives that same way. Second thing we've touched on a little bit is we have to protect our hearts. Proverbs chapter 4, verse 23, it says, Watch over your heart with all diligence, for from it flows the springs of life. If we're not protecting our hearts, then we can't be doing what Christ wants us to do. Because as we saw, from our hearts is what comes all these sins that the devil wants in our lives. If we get our heart where it needs to be, everything else is a lot easier. The third thing, we've got to pay attention to what we're exposed to. We've gone into a lot of detail in this already. But the content that's around us in our lives, we have to watch it. We can't just let it be something that's playing in the background we don't pay attention to. We have to start paying attention to these things. Fourth thing, there's so much here at this congregation and just in the world in general that the church is needing done. Find somewhere to get involved in the church. Find something that you're good at that you can do because I guarantee you the church has a need. This congregation has needs. We have things that need to be done. Get involved and help. What that does is it forces us to be around people and around an environment that is a very Christian environment. It's not going to be people that are going to be dragging us down in our Christian lives. And that leads into the next thing is we have to surround ourselves with an environment that is good for a Christian to be living in. And we have to be willing to take the steps to change things in our life if necessary to make that happen. So now I just want to take a moment, think back on your Christian life. Think back to the day that you were baptized. I remember when I was baptized, August 17, 1995. It was actually the night before I started seventh grade. Think back to that time in your life when you became a Christian. Now think about your life since then. What have you done as a Christian since that point? Have you continued to grow as a Christian that you, you've had an influence in the church in this world? Or has your life from a Christian standpoint, been downhill since that point. When, when you look at your Christian life, would you describe yourself as a disciple? But I think the better question is, would Christ describe us as disciples? Or would Christ look at our lives, your life, my life, and say, that's a one-and-done Christian? That's somebody that when they had their baptism, that was the pinnacle of their Christian life. It's been all downhill since then. If you answer that question to yourself, thinking back on your own life, that, yeah, I've, I can't really think of a whole lot that I've done since then. There's a change we have to make. Do we love Christ more than anyone or anything else in our lives? Do we allow things to get in the way of our involvement with the church, of dedicating the time to Christ that we need to dedicate to him? Are we willing to take the steps necessary to eliminate those things from our lives so that nothing stands between us and Christ? If you, if you can't really describe yourself as a true disciple, make that change this morning. Get your life on the track where it needs to be. If you've been living your life openly defiant to the church, to what the scriptures tell us that we should be doing, let us pray with you this morning. Lean on us as your church family. We're here to try to help you. There's a reason that God organized his church throughout the world the way he did with these congregations of people that meet together. He didn't tell us that once you become a Christian, good luck. You're on your own. 
We're here as your Christian family to help you, to help build you up and pull you along if necessary. If you've never even made that decision to become a Christian, you're not even a one-and-done Christian. You don't have any claim to anything. Come in contact with that blood of Christ today. Become a child of his. We have everything here this morning ready to go. So if you need to make changes in your life, if you need to become a Christian, we ask that you do that as we stand and as we sing.